This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Thanks for being here today. We're now in 1957, the 30th year of the Academy Awards and the 24th year of the Best Song category. The Academy, through its Board of Governors and various members of the Academy's branches, made a few overhauls to the nomination process that did not affect the Best Song category. One of the biggest changes was limiting those who could participate in nominations. In the first 29 years of the Academy Awards, members of the Screen Actors Guild and Screen Directors Guild had been allowed to submit nominations for acting and directing. In 1957, the guilds were shut out of contributing to the world's biggest entertainment award, and now, only Academy members nominated actors and directors. That brought down the number of voters for the acting category significantly, from about 12,000 to just under 1,000. It has always been the intent that the nominations balloting, like the final awards voting, should be a privilege restricted exclusively to Academy members, the Academy said in a statement. They just needed the membership to grow big enough to reach that goal. The awards for cinematography, art direction, and costume design had been separated into black and white and color films. That will no longer be the case with all three categories now having one award each. The music branch also made some changes, but as I said, the best song category rules remained unchanged. It was the scoring awards that got a major overhaul, eliminating the two categories and presenting just one score category for the first time since 1938. The Academy didn't give a reason for combining the score categories, though the fact that musicals were not being made by the dozens anymore per year might have something to do with it. Musical scores were still eligible for the Oscar in 1957, but they had to compete with the scores from non-musical films. The members of the music branch voted for their five best scores, and the five best were nominated for the Best Scoring Award. And in 1957... No musicals received a nomination in that category. The lack of quality musicals in 1957 was not reflected only in the single score category, but in the original song award. Only one of the songs nominated in 1957 came from a musical, and it was one that didn't do very well at the box office. Movie musicals aren't dead, though. They're just lying low for now. Movie studios were just diverting the money used to create big-budget musicals and using them to create big-budget epics, and those epics were doing very well. In 1956, the top three grocers of the year were movies that ran three hours or more and featured some lavish location shooting or special effects. The Ten Commandments, Around the World in 80 Days, and Giant were very popular with moviegoers, even though studios worried about losing money because the longer running times meant fewer screenings. The Ten Commandments made $55 million worldwide, the most money any film had made in the 1950s. By contrast, a normal movie musical would cost just $3 million to make, and none had ever made anywhere near $55 million at the box office. 
So the investment into these epic widescreen color films was the way studios wanted to go. Something had to go when studios saw a new trend rising and musicals were on the chopping block. Frank Sinatra's Pal Joey and Gene Kelly's Les Girls helped keep the genre alive, making small profits for their studios. But Pal Joey was an adaptation of a Broadway show, and Cole Porter's songs in Les Girls were not well received, furthering Porter's swift return to New York. But as I said, the movie musical never fully goes away. And as long as the veteran Hollywood songwriters were still around, movie songs would still be popular moneymakers. Of the 11 songwriters nominated for the Best Song Oscar in 1957, eight of them had won at least one Oscar, and all of them had been previously nominated. This was the first year in the 24 years of the original Song Academy Award that all nominated songwriters in a particular year were previous nominees. The most recent winners were Ray Livingston and Jay Evans, who had just snagged an Oscar for K. Sarah Sarah at the 1957 Academy Award ceremony. As they were accepting their award, they had already been assigned to write the title song for the Debbie Reynolds comedy, Tammy and the Bachelor. I guess it's not really a title song since it's just called Tammy, but it is the film's theme song to be more specific. Livingston and Evans had spent 10 years under contract at Paramount, and once their 10-year relationship had ended, they were free to accept jobs from other studios. It could have been a disastrous choice to leave the comforts of Paramount at the time. Most freelance songwriters weren't doing very well in terms of finding consistent work at the time, but writing three Oscar-winning songs in the span of eight years had them very much in demand. Universal Pictures snatched them up right away, asking them to write a song for Nat King Cole in the movie Istanbul. That song was I Was a Little Lonely, and it didn't turn into a hit like Mona Lisa did for Nat King Cole but their next movie for Universal got them back on the Billboard charts and back on the Oscar nominations list. Tammy and the Bachelor is not a great movie, especially because it plays into the stereotypes of what Hollywood thinks people who live in the backwood swamps of the Deep South talk, act, and look like. Perhaps there is some truth in the way Debbie Reynolds portrays Tammy, and she gives Tammy a lot of charm, but not every movie can be singing in the rain. The nominated song is heard in the opening credits by a male chorus, mentioning the various things in nature that are singing about them being in love with Tammy. The song has some similarities to last year's nominated song, Julie, in that the lyrics sing the woman's name often. But Julie, the song, was about a woman escaping an abusive husband. Tammy is about being in love with this girl. Cottonwoods whispered above Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's my love The old hootie owl Hootie hoots to the dove Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's my love Does my darling feel what I feel When she comes near my heart beats so joyfully You'd think that she could hear Wish I knew if she knew What I'm dreaming of Tammy, 
The opening credit song is performed by the Ames Brothers, who were just becoming famous thanks to their TV show named after them. Each episode lasted only 15 minutes each week, but their performances were enough to grab the attention of Livingston and Evans, who requested the brothers as performers of the song. The main plot of the film involves Tammy spending time at a mansion owned by the family of the man she has rescued in the swamp. That man is played by Leslie Nielsen, who was just in his second year as a movie actor after a few years toiling in small TV roles. Nielsen's character, Peter, asks Tammy to stay at his home, and she enlivens the people around her while also falling in love with Peter. Though this isn't a musical, we have to have a moment when Tammy professes her love. In Shakespeare, we would have a lengthy monologue. In a Hollywood movie, that monologue is a song. It's the same version of Tammy that the Ames brothers sang in the credits, but the pronouns are switched. Peter's aunt is listening to her sing and encourages Tammy to sing more, giving us more lyrics. Cottonwoods whispering above Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love The old hooty owl, hooty who's to the dove Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love Does my lover feel what I feel when he comes near? My heart beats so joyfully. You'd think that he could hear. Wish I knew if he knew what I'm dreaming of. Tammy, Tammy, Tammy. Very nice, Tammy. Don't stop. Whippoorwill, whippoorwill, you and I know. Tammy, Tammy, can't let him go. The breeze from the bayou keeps murmuring. Night is warm, soft and warm. I long for his charms. I'd sing like a violin if I were in his arms. Wish I knew if he knew what I'm dreaming of. Tammy, Tammy. Miss Rennie, that same moon shining on me this very minute, 
is shining down on Pete's tomatoes. If Tammy and the Bachelor were a musical, we might have gotten a third song rendition of Tammy. But all we get at the end when Tammy and Peter finally kiss is an instrumental version. Debbie Reynolds was 25 years old when she filmed Tammy and the Bachelor, a little old for the character. So it wasn't a surprise when she didn't return for the two sequels in the 1960s. Her age was just one reason. Another reason was that she was too big a star to act in sequels to a film that already didn't do much for her career. Her recording of Tammy made Debbie Reynolds one of the few female singers to have a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 in late 1958, a time when Elvis Presley and Pat Boone were dominating the music scene. According to the Billboard Book of Number One Hits, the lush orchestrations of Tammy were a last-minute decision by the studios to have more than a piano playing during Debbie Reynolds' performance. The arranger of the song was Henry Mancini, a rising star in the Hollywood music scene, and a name we'll hear a lot as the podcast goes along. If there's anything to take away from Tammy and the Bachelor other than the Oscar-nominated song, it's that Debbie Reynolds gave birth to daughter Carrie Fisher just before filming began in October 1956. Livingston and Evans were hoping to be the first songwriters to win the Oscar two years in a row, and also be the first four-time Oscar-winning songwriters. Winning the award in 1955 were Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster, who were on a break from each other in 1956, but got back together in 1957 for another nominated song and a chance for a third Oscar. That song was April Love, the title song from the musical featuring Pat Boone in his second film. Studios had been courting Boone since he became a big singing sensation in 1956, when his version of Friendly Persuasion helped him stop singing songs that black men made popular and make hits of his own. 20th Century Fox won the bidding war. Boone starred in two of the studio's musicals that were released in 1957. The first was Bernadine, which was made into a musical after Boone became the leading man. April Love was the second giving Boone two moderately successful films that year. But don't let internet praise fool you. Both films made only about $3.7 million each, which wasn't nearly enough to crack the top 10 box office earnings and nowhere near the big money that Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Dinah Shore, or even Mario Lanza brought in for their big screen debuts. The Los Angeles Times had a hard time finding a way to describe Pat Boone in April Love. John Scott, the reviewer for the movie, said it was a pleasant feature and that it won't offend anyone. In the article, Scott puts the word acting in quotes when referring to Boone, which isn't high praise at all. And when describing the title song, Scott simply says that Boone sings the song. That's it. Pat Boone doesn't sing April Love over the opening credits. Instead, we get Sammy Fain's music for the song. Since the movie is a musical, it's surprising there isn't an overture of music from other songs in the film. Boone's performance of April Love in the film is done about 40 minutes into the movie when his character, Nick, attends a local dance with Shirley Jones' character, Liz, who is sort of a tomboy, but not so much as to typecast her into that type of role. At this dance, Nick wins $15 in a raffle, but has to entertain the crowd in order to win it 
he chooses to sing April Love, which must have been a very popular song that exists in this world because the orchestra at the dance knows it very well. Like the film itself, the song April Love doesn't really know what it wants to be. It starts off describing a girl named April who is seemingly perfect and will always be 17 years old. Then it switched to describing the month of April and the spring season within that month, saying the rain that occurs makes flowers grow and urges men to not let the women they love get away. Can you play April Love? Well, I can't, but I think the boys can. Sure. Has anybody here seen April Dressed in her gown of green She walks in a world of enchantment Where no one ever grows much older Than seventeen Every star's a wishing star that shines for you. April love is all the seven wonders. One little kiss can tell you this is true. Sometimes an April day will suddenly bring showers, rain to grow the flowers for her first bouquet. But April love can slip right through your fingers, so if she Don't let her run away So if she's the one Don't let her run away On the way home from the dance in the very next scene, Nick and Liz sing the song as a duet. Seven wonders One little kiss 
can tell you this is true. Sometimes an April day. Sometimes an April day will suddenly bring showers, rain to grow the flowers for her first bouquet. right through your fingers so if she's the one don't let her You would think that the two would fall in love after singing together, since that's what usually happens in these situations. But Nick reveals that he likes Liz's sister more, which angers Liz. The movie doesn't know what to do with the romantic plot, especially where the love triangle is involved. But in the end, it seems like Nick and Liz will be together. And everyone is happy driving home from the film's climactic horse race, singing April Love for us one more time. Pat Boone takes it over for the last two lines as we close out the movie. Sometimes an April day will suddenly bring showers, rain to grow the flowers for her first bouquet. Right through your fingers So if she's the one Don't let her run away So if she's the one Don't let her run The song fits perfectly into Boone's singing style, which I can't help but feel is very much in the Bing Crosby vein. I could imagine Bing singing the song, which, oddly enough, he never did. Six months after Boone recorded a song written in 1931 called Love Letters in the Sand, it went to number one thanks to its appearance in Bernadine. And then he had a number one with April Love. It certainly helped Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster that the song was still in heavy radio rotation when the music branch was voting for its nominees for Best Song in late January. One week after April Love started its climb up the Billboard sales charts all the way to number one, Frank Sinatra was trying to make a dent with his tune, All the Way. The song only climbed as high as number 15 on the Billboard sales charts, but had a lengthy radio engagement. Again, a very good way to promote the song for Oscar voters. The song appeared in Sinatra's film biography of nightclub singer Joe Lewis, called The Joker is Wild. Sinatra's new songwriting duo, Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen, wrote all the way for Sinatra, who wanted a new song for the film instead of using songs that Lewis had performed. Smartly, Kahn and Van Heusen weren't going to write a song called The Joker is Wild, instead hoping to write a song that could be used as the film's new title. 
Khan said in an interview that All the Way was the perfect song title for a Frank Sinatra song and for this movie. Frank Sinatra goes all the way in all the way, Khan suggested to the studio brass as a promotional tagline for the movie. Paramount loved the song. Sinatra loved the song. But the film was always going to be called The Joker is Wild after the novel on which it's based. The movie was financed independently by Lewis and Sinatra as a passion project. I'm sure Sinatra also had visions of him winning another Oscar for playing what he called one of only about four or five great artists in this century. And you could see him practically begging for that Oscar in a pivotal hospital scene and in a couple of scenes when he's playing Joe as a drunk. With Paramount essentially leaving Sinatra and director Charles Vidor to film the movie as they pleased, it also meant there was no studio standing over Khan and Van Heusen demanding that they put the phrase, The Joker is Wild, into the one song they were asked to write for the movie. All the Way is heard three times, all in crucial moments in the film. Joe wants to make it big, and he leaves his job singing at speakeasies for a new gig at a nightclub. His former boss, who is deep in the mob, isn't too happy about that and shows up to Joe's opening night performance to quietly threaten him. Joe sees his former boss in the audience, as does his loyal piano player, just before singing all the way. Please, Mr. Mack, no knuckles. <laughs> When somebody loves you, it's no good unless he loves you all the way. Happy to be near you when you need someone to cheer all the way. Taller than the tallest. That's how it's got to feel Deeper than the deep blue seas That's how deep it goes if it's real When somebody needs you It's no good unless he needs you For all the in-between years Come what may Who knows where the road will lead us Only a fool would say But if you let me love you It's for sure I'm gonna love you Also in the crowd is a big shot record producer who offers Joe a contract making records. We see Joe listening to his recording of All the Way at his apartment, which is where he's brutally attacked by mob enforcers. All the way. 
you know it's pretty frightening to hear yourself as other people can hear you sounds like the mating call of a moose with a tin ear <laughs> three minutes ago that was the greatest record ever made now i know why coogan wanted me killed this boy's got public spirit please don't mention it let sleeping dogs lie weeks passed now and we haven't heard from him say nothing I'll meet you at the music publishers at three, huh? Mm-hmm. Enjoy yourself. What else? Captain McCarthy. The thugs slit Joe's throat, which leaves him unable to sing again. But he doesn't tell his friends that when they find him in New York City years later. So after he finishes playing a mute during a vaudeville act, Sophie Tucker brings him back out to convince him to sing. The audience wants all the way, and Joe does his best to oblige them. What would you like to sing now? Just one more chance. Falling in love again. Beyond the blue horizon. How about all the way, all the way? All the way. Go to it, boy. All the way. somebody loves you it's no good unless he loves you oh. maybe those guys in Chicago weren't gangsters after all maybe they were music critics might as well give it up Austin I can't even talk in that key This was the pivotal scene on which the song was written, Khan said in an interview. Because Joe is supposed to be able to jump up an octave during a song, Van Heusen had to write a melody that seemed impossible to reach for a man whose instrument has been compromised. Van Heusen's melody becomes the film's love theme, played when Joe meets his love interest Letty, played by Gene Crane. The music is their accompaniment as they dance after getting engaged. Victor Winter, Joe, and I think it's wonderful. You're kidding? I saw this coming a long time ago. <laughs> By the way, I accept. Thanks, baby. Thanks for a lot of things, too. Beside that.
but that engagement doesn't lead to marriage. Joe tours the world doing USO shows during World War II, and Letty marries someone else. Joe hopes to move on with his life, and he has a successful return to nightclubs as a comedian, complete with a tall, alcoholic drink in his hand. One night he sees Letty in the audience and decides to sing all the way. Because he's drunk, Joe's singing isn't as refined as it was in his earlier career, and Letty begins to cry with that realization. The lyrics have also changed, and now Joe is singing as if the song applies to himself and not the girl he loves. What's happening is that he's singing to Letty, admitting his fault for not giving her all the love she needed and deserved. That's enough of that. Let's have a song, Mr. Mack. Uh, all the way. When you find a lover, it's no good unless you love her all the way. Never just a little, don't go dealing from the middle all the way. Stay there for the full nine innings. And pitch with all your heart Stay there Double up your winnings Don't let go of her If you're smart You won't find another Who is in your corner The last performance of the song, All the Way, comes at the end of the film, at Joe's lowest point. He's lost the woman he eventually married, he's punched his best friend in a drunken fight, and probably ended his career. He walks along the street and passes by the club where he first sang All the Way, and we hear Joe sing it in voiceover before Joe tells his inner voice to stop. After having a conversation with himself, Joe decides to shape up and be a better person. We don't see that transformation because the movie ends at that point, something critics were quick to point out as a fault of the film. When somebody loves you, it's no good unless he loves you. In a Frank Sinatra film, you know you're going to get the attention of the music branch if the eligible song is performed in some way at least five times. As I said, the commercial record didn't do well by Frank Sinatra standards, but the timing of its radio play helped come nomination time. Since the film wasn't called All the Way, those who loved the song didn't make a connection to it being in a Frank Sinatra film, especially if they weren't fans of Sinatra's acting. Plus, the title, The Joker is Wild, which is the title of the book on which the film is based, probably led people to think this was a movie about card playing. But if you think about it, Joker could mean comedian as well, right? Anyway, the movie only made $3 million, which helped everyone break even. 
it didn't do much to boost Sinatra's pedigree as an actor, even though it was only two years since he had won his Oscar for From Here to Eternity. Though All the Way didn't sell massive numbers, it showed a new style for Sinatra that he would use in his songs written by Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn. When he sings the words All the Way, Sinatra has to jump more than an octave above where he had sung the previous line. These major note shifts were heard a little bit in Three Coins in the Fountain, but that was written by a different songwriting duo. Kahn and Van Heusen used this new style in another song that Sinatra recorded one month after The Joker is Wild premiered on movie screens. Come Fly With Me has become another Sinatra standard, and if you have heard it in movies, you pretty much have only heard his version. Other artists can only aspire to interpret it as well as Sinatra. Come Fly With Me was a bigger hit than All The Way, and it's a shame it was not recorded for use in a movie, though it continues to stay relevant thanks to directors these days who are Frank Sinatra fans. Frank Sinatra didn't get that Oscar nomination he was surely hoping for. But the next nominated song comes from a movie which does feature an Oscar-nominated leading male performance. The movie is Wild is the Wind, starring Anthony Quinn and Anna Magnani as a couple with marital problems almost immediately after they are wed. Quinn is marrying Magnani a few years after Quinn's wife, who is also Magnani's sister, has died. We hear the title song as Quinn takes off to Italy to meet his new bride, with visuals of clouds over the opening credits joining the silky voice of Johnny Mathis, singing about his wild and passionate love. Love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly away with you. For my love is like the wind and wild is the wind. You touch me, I hear the sound of mandolin. the world begins your spring to me all things to me your life itself like a leaf clings to a tree oh my darling Wild is the Wind is the latest collaboration between Dmitry Tiomkin and Ned Washington, who gave movie songs new purpose with High Noon five years earlier. They essentially do the same thing with Wild is the Wind, letting the song express the emotions of one of the movie's characters. On the surface, Mathis might be the singing voice of Anthony Quinn's character, whose love for his new wife is indeed wild, unpredictable, and messy. It could also be a song for the young Bene played by newcomer Anthony Franciosa, who discovers that he is in love with Magnani, 
Bene is younger, so his emotions are more impulsive and irresistible. And looking at Anthony Franciosa, it's easy to see why Anna McNani's character would jump into his arms and not Anthony Quinn's. Wild as the Wind is the second song nomination for Paramount in 1957. And like All the Way, Wild as the Wind was not a great seller commercially, even with a slightly extended version for the album. Johnny Mathis, who was 22 years old and just starting his career when he recorded the song, had a highly watched performance on the Ed Sullivan Show in the summer of 1957 to help increase his exposure to Academy voters. While Johnny Mathis was just starting on his career in 1957, Vic Damone was trying hard to sustain his at just 29 years old after nearly a decade of fame and fortune. Damone had just ended his contract with Mercury Records and moved over to Capitol Records, where he sang the love song On the Street Where You Live from the new Broadway musical My Fair Lady. When Leo McCary was setting up his long-awaited remake of his 1939 film Love Affair, now called An Affair to Remember, he wanted a famous singer to perform the title song in the opening credits, and Damone accepted. Is a wondrous thing that we'll rejoice in remembering. Our love was born with our first embrace, and the page was torn. Out of time and space Our love affair May it always be A flame to burn Through eternity So take my hand With a fervor We may live and we may share a love affair to An Affair to Remember follows the plot of Love Affair almost exactly, with Deborah Carr playing a music teacher who is in love with Cary Grant's rich playboy. Just as Irene Dunn did in Love Affair, Carr gets to sing a song in which... Just as Irene Dunn did in Love Affair, Carr gets to sing a song which was nominated for an Oscar. Though the nominated song from 1939 was sung by Dunn with a group of children, Carr sings an affair to remember when she is visiting Grant's grandmother during their ocean liner's stop in France. The song is performed in French after a lengthy musical introduction by the grandmother on the piano, and it stops as she gets sad about the sound of the ship's horns calling Nick and Terry back before setting sail again.
It's not really Deborah Carr's voice singing the theme song. It's really Marnie Nixon, who has become and will remain one of the most well-known voice doubles in Hollywood. If not for Deborah Carr publicly praising Marnie Nixon in 1956 for dubbing her singing in The King and I, very few people might have never known of Nixon's talents that will continue to the film versions of My Fair Lady and West Side Story. Marnie Nixon does an English version of An Affair to Remember later in the film when Terry is ending a six-month singing engagement in Boston. An Affair to Remember is her farewell song before she returns to New York to marry Cary Grant's character. And if you have seen the film, you know it doesn't turn out well. But she sings the song optimistically and hopefully for the future. Our love affair wondrous thing that we rejoice in remembering our love was born with our first embrace and a page was torn out of time That's the final time we hear the full lyrics to An Affair to Remember, 
but Harry Warren's melody captivated McCary so much that he asked Hugo Friedhofer to blend it into his score. The highlight moment comes in the finale, when Cary Grant has realized that Deborah Carr is crippled and understands why she missed their appointment at the top of the Empire State Building. The music swells as they reconcile and pledge to love each other through the hard times. A chorus gives us the final line as the film ends. If it had to happen to one of us, why did it have to be you? Oh, it was nobody's fault but my own. I, I was looking up. It was the nearest thing to heaven. You were there. Oh, darling, don't, don't worry, darling. If, if you can paint, I can walk. <laughs> Anything can happen, don't you think? Yes, darling, yes, yes. song, An Affair to Remember, was subtitled Our Love Affair, giving us two Oscar-nominated songs with that title. You might remember that Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney sang Our Love Affair back in 1940 for the movie Strike Up the Band. The 1957 song was written by Harry Warren, Harold Adamson, and Leo McCary. Adams had a brief moment of popularity in 1953 when he wrote some lyrics to the popular musical theme for the I Love Lucy TV show. Those lyrics were performed on the air by Desi Arnaz for just one episode, but it was a song that probably many fans of the show have been clamoring for after hearing the main theme for 60 episodes. Harry Warren was in the twilight years of a great career, having published hit songs since the late 1920s. He was no longer in a contract with any of the studios, but his track record attracted him to McCary, who was looking for an old-school composer to fit the old-school feel of the film. I didn't want some 30-year-old writing songs for the movie, McCary said in an interview. These songs needed the polish of someone who had been writing love ballads for decades. A syndicated article published in various newspapers around the time An Affair to Remember was released in theaters noted that if you added up all the songs the three had written in their lifetimes, the song An Affair to Remember was collectively their thousandth song. That's not too remarkable, given that Warren and Adamson came from the hollowed Tin Pan Alley days when they were called on to write as many as 100 songs in a year, some of which might have barely made any money. And though McCary is known for winning an Oscar for directing Bing Crosby to an Oscar in Going My Way, he had been a prolific songwriter too, 
submitting lyrics for Fly-By-Night singers, who helped reassure McCary that he was better off as a director and screenwriter. Johnny Mathis almost had two of the songs he performed in 1957 nominated for an Oscar. In spring 1957, he made a big splash with the song It's Not For Me To Say, which he performed on screen in the movie Lizzie as a piano player in a dive bar. That song was written by Robert Allen and Al Stillman, who were making some hits for Perry Como in the early 50s before being assigned to write songs for Mathis. It's not for me to say You love me It's not for me to say You'll always care But here for the moment I can hold you fast And press your lips to mine And dream that love will last As far as I can see this is heaven. Robin. There ain't no Robin here. Oh, hold it. Just for me. It's Hello. ours to share. Hi, Lizzie. What about your aunt? The of love Honey, I'll be over before you can hang up the phone. With every passing day. If Billboard chart positions were any indication of getting an Oscar nomination, it's not for me to say should have been a shoe-in. Mathis's version sold more than one million records, getting as high as number five on the Billboard charts, which is higher than all but two of the nominated songs, April Love and Tammy but Lizzie did not do as well at the box office and was overshadowed by the similarly-themed The Three Faces of Eve, starring Joanne Woodward as a woman with multiple personalities. When it made less than $1 million at the box office, Lizzie's chances of any Oscar attention were pretty much sunk. But at least Johnny Mathis escaped from it relatively unharmed. In November 1957, Elvis Presley had his second starring movie role in Jailhouse Rock, playing a prison inmate who learns how to be a famous musician while serving time. The movie's title song is the most famous in the song score by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who had become Presley's in-house songwriters. The story goes that Lieber and Stoller had stalled on writing the songs for months and were locked in a hotel room in New York until they had completed their assignment. In one day, they wrote four songs, including Jailhouse Rock, and one of the other popular songs from the film, I Want to Be Free. In terms of Jailhouse Rock, the song went to number one on the Billboard charts, which was Presley's sixth number one song in less than two years. In 1957, movie songs were still being censored by the Motion Picture Association of America, with many getting trimmed or cut entirely due to suggestive lyrics that were allowed in songs not appearing in movies. If you've heard Jailhouse Rock, 
it's likely that you know the song is, well, let's say that it plays into the stereotype of same-sex relations going on in men's prisons. The song tells of a party that took place at a prison with various gangs playing instruments and getting their kicks. One has to wonder how the lines, number 47 said to number 3, you're the cutest little jailbird I ever did see, got past the censors, but it did. And it's heard quite prominently in the performance with two dancers somewhat miming the words. Unless Presley thought he was singing about those very rare co-ed jailhouse dances, he must not have cared about it or paid attention to the lyrics that closely. Presley was a devout Christian, though I'm not sure about his stance on homosexuality in the 1950s and 1960s during the height of his popularity. Perhaps his singing the song was his stamp of approval on homosexuality. your breath on any song by Elvis Presley getting eventually a stamp of approval from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The men who were part of the music branch probably didn't like hearing their sons and daughters playing Elvis Presley in their bedrooms, and they certainly weren't going to boost up the King of Rock by recognizing any of his movie songs. So we have five somewhat conventional tunes nominated in 1957. An Affair to Remember, All the Way, April Love, Tammy, and Wild is the Wind. None of them had that front-runner status that made it easy for journalists and critics to pick the winner. Tammy and April Love had their Billboard number 1 status going for them, but in the very early years of the Billboard Hot 100, that status did not give a song better odds of winning the Oscar. For the March 26, 1958 ceremony, four of the five songs were going to be performed by the original artist, the most that had agreed to appear on the show at the time. The only song that didn't have its original performer on stage that night was All the Way, which was once again handled by Frank Sinatra's proxy, Dean Martin. Shirley Jones was joined by Ann Blythe, Anna Alberghetti, Jimmy Rogers, Tommy Sands, and Tab Hunter 
for a rousing rendition of April Love, similar to what happened at the end of that movie. The show featured more musical entertainment than the presentation of that year's original song nominees. The TV audience and those at the Pantages Theater were treated to a medley of previous Oscar-winning songs and a new song written specifically for the show called It's Great Not to be Nominated. Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, neither of whom were nominated for their performances in that year's Gunfight at the OK Corral, mocked some of the acting nominees with lyrics written by Sammy Kahn and a melody written by Jimmy Van Heusen. Marlon Brando, a nominee for playing a Southern Army man in Japan in the movie Sayonara, was mentioned for that corny Southern drawl. And Brando played the good sport and waved back. Alec Guinness wasn't in the audience, but Khan assumed he would be there with the lyric, Alec flew all the way from Britain. Bully, Bert, that's why my teeth are grittin'. While neither of them were nominated that year, they knew what it was like to be a nominee since both of them had been in Brando's and Guinness's positions in previous years and would be in later years. As for the presentation of the Best Song Award, Maurice Chevalier was invited to return to name the winner. A few months earlier, Chevalier had finished filming his big return to the silver screen in the movie Gigi, which was about to be released in three months. And host Bob Hope made no mention of the upcoming Gigi, which might not have been allowed by the Academy then, as it is not allowed now. But surely Chevalier was in Hollywood to start the big press tour for Gigi, which MGM hoped would be the film everyone would talk about at next year's Oscars. And Chevalier kicked it off by performing some of his most remembered hits from his career before naming All the Way as the best song winner of 1957. Sammy Kahn started his acceptance speech by asking forgiveness to the many people he wasn't going to be able to thank, except for one person, and that was Jimmy Van Heusen, the Yul Brenner of ASCAP. Now, why did he refer to Yul Brenner? Well, since this is a podcast, I can't show you a photograph of Van Heusen, but in 1957, he was almost completely bald, like Yul Brenner, the star of The King and I. Van Heusen didn't say much more than thank you before they left the stage. That makes it two Oscars each for Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn, with their first Oscars being won with different collaborators. As for Frank Sinatra, who has performed two Oscar-winning songs for Sammy Kahn without being thanked, he was ready for his loyal songwriters to create another song for the next drama for Old Blue Eyes, which was Completing Filming. We'll learn about that song and the film in the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. It seems like 1957 was a big year for movie songs, and 1958 is going to try to raise the bar. We'll see if that can happen. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.